This is God's word to you because you are his beloved children. So, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, uh, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, how much it speaks uh, to the deepest things in our minds, our souls, our lives, and uh, leads us uh, to fix our eyes on Jesus, our Savior. Um, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to lead us into uh, the truth of your word. And you know each one of our lives. Uh, you know the things that we need to hear that need to be addressed in our lives the, and, and the hope that we need, the promises that we need in our life. And so I pray that now uh, you would uh, instruct each one of us individually as we set our hearts to study your word and commit our minds to it. And so we pray for your spirit to attend to us now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, if you were here last week, our topic was self-deception, which one of the things that we were saying is that uh, as humans, we all have a propensity to be blind to certain things in our life and our character that are glaringly obvious to everyone else around us, and and we don't even see them. And actually, that when we're self-deceived and don't see these things, it's actually quite damaging to our relationship to God, our intimacy with God, and also our relationship to other people. And so if you were here last week, you might take away from that and say, wow, gosh, there's all kinds of things in my character that I have blind spots to, I don't even see them, that the answer to self-deception would be that I need to take a long, hard look at the truth of my character and really look at who I am. And, uh, but one of the things that we find out in this passage um, is that if a a soul that is, um, you might say, unsound or unhealthy, is self-deceived. A healthy soul is actually not a a person who's looking at themselves all the time, introspective. That's actually not what joy and vitality in life is. It's actually forgetting about yourself. 
That's actually what health is, which is surprising, right? Because, um, but it turns out that you, you actually think about, you know, what happens when you're self-absorbed, when you're thinking about yourself and your mind is turned in on yourself all the time. Actually, that's when you become self-deceived because you're thinking about what other people think of you all the time and, oh, that person looked at me that way and I said this, not quite right. And so you feel a sense of, of shame and you feel kind of derailed by other people's opinions. And so then you start ignoring the flaws in yourself. And so it's actually self-absorption leads to self-deception. Looking at yourself makes you blind to yourself, which is kind of odd. And that actually, health and vitality doesn't look like introspection. It means opening your eyes in a kind of self-forgetfulness. Joy, boldness, honesty in the world looks like being freed from constantly being concerned about what kind of person you are. Surprising. Paradoxical. And actually, in the Corinthian church, uh, the this church that Paul wrote a letter to, this was a church that Paul had founded. He was the church planner. He went into Corinth. There's this uh, Roman uh, city and uh, told all these people about Jesus. They came together. They formed a community like this. He pastored them for a year and a half and then he left. And then these other pastors who came in and pastored them. And a number of the people said, you know, we actually like the new pastors. And they started to be really critical of Paul who was kind of their spiritual father. And so in this passage, he's talking about how do I deal with that fact that you're critical of me? And this is how he says he approaches this conflict. Look at verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I don't judge myself. He says, this game of constantly evaluating myself, am I good enough? I've given it up. I'm done with that game. That's not what God's calling me to. Does that sound like joy to you? Does that sound like freedom? Giving up the game of the constant self-evaluation and self-judgment and um, that I have the security that I can, both, I can re- both receive criticism and challenge from other people. I can learn and I can grow from it, but it doesn't turn me in on myself to constantly be thinking about myself all the time. And um, I'm freed from the courtroom of people's opinions and from the courtroom of my own, my own life. And so, inner health you know, being a whole person, being a joyful person, actually doesn't look like constant introspection. Now, for some of you, that's, that's a regular part of your day-to-day life, is introspection, turn, your mind turned in on yourself. That's, and, and, you, and we might think that that's the answer to self-deception, but it's, it's actually not. That's actually not what honesty about ourselves looks like. And um, uh, vitality looks like self-forgetfulness actually forgetting about myself. And uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor, he gave a sermon actually on this passage that turned, was turned into a little booklet on self-forgetfulness. It was called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Freedom. And I'm going to be drawing on that at a couple points in, in this sermon. But in particular, what I want to draw out are two observations from this passage today for us to think about. The first is this. Life is not meant to be lived looking at yourself. Life is not meant to be lived looking at yourself. It's, it's meant to have your eyes open looking outward, not inward. And second, self-forgetfulness comes through a life story shaped by grace. When your life story is defined by grace, that is the key to learning 
the freedom, the, the joy of self-forgetfulness. So these are our two, two points for today. And uh, the first is this, that life is not meant to be lived looking at yourself. Now, in the Corinthian church, this church that is becoming critical of Paul, they have actually kind of broken into all these factions. They're fighting with each other. There's all kinds of envy and strife going on and, you know, uh, backstabbing and all kinds of, of things that are happening in the church. And uh, the reason, Paul says, this is the big issue for them is their pride, right? And you, you hear Paul twice talks about the, this language of boasting. Look at uh, verse, chapter 23, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 21 says, so let no one boast in men. And then in verse 6 in chapter 4, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn to not go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So the, the Corinthians, they have this kind of inflated view of themselves. They're self-absorbed. They think they're wise. They think they're great. And uh, it's causing all these fractions in the church. And so Paul says, in between these two things about saying your problem is your pride and your boasting, he says about himself, but I came, I was your servant. I was not above you, I was below you. I was your servant. And, uh, and that's what he says. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, slaves of Christ, and stewards of the ministry, mysteries of God. Now, it's interesting. The question is, how does Paul not become inf- self-inflated and self-absorbed and not have this pride in boasting? How does, he, how does he deal with that? Is it that he kind of beats himself up and he says all the time, oh, I'm just nothing and I'm just such a bad person and I, I'm not worth anything? Is he t- That's often how we think of what humility is, right? Is you, you kind of say bad things about yourself. That's not what he says the answer is. Instead, he says, again in verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by, uh, by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I've given up judging myself. The eyes of judgment, I don't turn on myself. And he says, for one, because I'm not even sure I can do that well. I mean, for me to be the judgment, I'm not even sure I understand my own life, my own soul. And for me to be the expert on really who I am, I'm not, I'm not really confident I can do that. It's the Lord alone who is my judge. It is only his eyes that I let judge me. It's not anyone else, and it's not even myself. It is the Lord alone. And so instead of turning his eyes toward the judgment of himself, he he fixes his eyes on Jesus. He says, I serve Jesus. I serve you, these people, my fellow Christians, who I I give my life for, and I behold the mysteries of God, the mysteries of who God is in in, in, uh, seeing who he is. So all these things, I'm not looking inward, I'm looking outward. And this is what a a life alive looks like, is not eyes looking inward, but outward. So life is not meant to be lived looking at yourself. Now this is actually true, you know, not just kind of psychologically, but actually biologically too, right? You look at your body and your eyes don't, you can't really see yourself, right? You can't even see your face. Your eyes look out, you know, I can kind of like see my beard a little bit if I go like this and uh, it's kind of getting out this way. So, uh, but, but you're, you can't see yourself, right? Your eyes are meant to like behold the wonders of other people and the, what God's created and you're supposed to take in the glory and so your focus is actually not on you. You're, not, you're made, you were built to not look at yourself. You're built to look outward. And uh, you know, in fact, I remember uh, when I was in my late teens when I was struggling with kind of the, some of the most severe depression that I ever st- struggled with in my life. I remember that the experience of, of depression is is being turned in on yourself. And, and some of you will know what I'm talking about, where you, you literally, you can't 
think about the world out there, it's like you're turned into like super introspection. And you're thinking about it. And I remember I used to do this thing just to, you know, you feel like there's a motor just running in your head where thoughts are just racing constantly. And it's constantly thoughts about yourself. And I said this, and I shouldn't have said that. And what does this person think of me? And oh, I'm, I should be doing more with my life. And I should be, and it's just constant, nonstop introspection that you don't even see the world around you. You don't see any grace. You can't behold it. I remember I, I'd go through this exercise where I would, I'd get like that and I'd say, okay, this book is real, okay? And it's just something to like get me looking out of my eyes and like this is a real thing and just to, to see that there was a world outside of myself and uh, because that, that's what depression is, is being turned in. And I remember, you know, I'd be driving and, you know, I'd drive for three miles and my head would be spinning. I was like, I don't remember the last three miles of driving. Or, you know, I could have just run right through stoplights and I'm not even aware of it because... I can't behold the world around me because my mind is turned in on myself. And actually, you know, a lot of us, as we struggle with depression, I, that's a lot of the shame that we feel in depression is because actually we want to be thinking about other people. We want to be serving other people. We want to be beholding God in his glory. And, and yet I feel turned in on myself. And so one of the things that we have to insist on, now I, I'm not saying I have the total solution for that this morning, but... One of the things that we need to realize is God's intention for us is not that we're turned in looking at our sin and analyzing ourselves all the time. So we shouldn't take from a sermon about self-deception that you need to analyze yourself all the time. A sermon from self-deception is about opening your eyes. And actually, there's a C.S. Lewis wrote a great novel called uh, Paralander. It's this, uh, part of his space trilogy. And it's, uh, it's a story about Venus, actually. And in, in Paralander, Venus is kind of like a new world, Earth. It's like uh, everything's been created. There's all these animals and these plants. And actually, in Paralanda, the islands in the ocean are not connected to the bottom of the ocean. They're more like carpets that are on top of the water. And so the, the landscape of the islands change because they go up and down. It's kind of this enchanted place. And there's all these animals that you can ride on in the water and stuff like that. And actually, they had these trees in Paralander where you... Uh, you walk up to the tree and they have the f this fruit or something on the trees, like this giant ball filled with this refreshing water. And when you walk under the tree, the, the ball breaks and it gives you like this shower of refreshment. And so Lewis is just a master of being in this just world that you just want to be there. And it's so beautiful and good. And there's only one person who lives there. It's the beginning of the race that's going to live there. It's this woman who lives there. And all the animals, she talks to all the animals and they follow her around and she plays with them. And she just enjoys this beautiful world. And so the whole story is about this guy who gets sent to Paralandra and he's possessed by the devil and he's going to try to tempt this woman to sin, you know, to sin against God. And it, you know what the key to his whole temptation was? Is he takes out a little pocket mirror and he shows her uh, herself. It's almost like she didn't even know that, who's, she's like, who is that? And why is there two of me now? And all of a sudden I'm being kind of like fractured. My person is being fractured into two persons. I wasn't supposed to see myself because I was supposed to be beholding the world filled with good things and God's blessings and kindness to me and so filled with wonder that I didn't even, I hardly, I just pretty much forgot about myself. And, uh, and the beginning of sin, the beginning of, uh, of ingratitude, the beginning of entitlement, the beginning of self-pity, all of these things come when we begin to start putting our focus on us, right? And some of you know that, that right? If you, uh, 
you know, the thing at times when we feel really alive, like we really know what we're doing, you know, maybe if you've played a sport and you've been really good at a sport, you don't, you're not thinking about yourself while you're playing the sport, you know, like I, I've played a lot of you in ping pong, you know, when you, I've beat a lot of you in ping pong. Uh, <laughs> but when you're playing ping pong, you know, if you're thinking about your hand and your arm and the racket and stuff, you're not, you're not going to win. You just, you, you've, you're just fluid and it's coming out of you. That's what uh, you feel alive is you're not thinking about yourself. And so life is not meant to be lived looking at yourself. And uh, it's good for us to know that that's what God intends for us. Now, of course, the obvious question to that is you say, well... Isn't, isn't repentance an important thing? Uh, you know, aren't there problems in my life that I need to take an honest look at and I need to confess and deal with? I mean, how do you do repentance if I'm just looking outward, I'm never thinking about myself? Isn't that going to make me self-deceived? And well, this is what Paul says. Look at verse 4. He says, For I, in the light of saying, he says, I, I do not judge myself. But he also says alongside that, he says in verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself. So it's not just that he ignores. If, if there's something he's in sin with, he does deal with it. He does face it. He's saying, right now, you know, if something comes up, I'll face it. But I'm not going to live my life just constantly analyzing, am I good enough, am I good enough? That's not how God intends me to live. And oftentimes in repentance, we, become, we think we're repenting, but we are, oftentimes are becoming more self-absorbed. I mean, I, I look in, in my own life and my family. You know, if I get into a mood where you know, I'm being really critical or I'm angry and I'm, uh, you know, barking at everyone, trying to tell everyone what to do. You know, I feel a lot of shame for that. And I'm like, man, I'm just destroying the whole mood of my household and it's so unpleasant. And so I get really down about, man, my sin's really bad. And I think that I'm repenting by leaving that mood and starting a new mood, which is me moping around or lying on the couch and not doing anything and feeling bad for what a sinner I am. We have to ask the question, is that really what my family needs? <laughs> for me to think about my sin? No. What my family needs is for me to acknowledge my sin, I am in sin, and then I put it under the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that has the power to cover my sin and to wash it. And then I trust in the power, in the blood of Jesus, and then I set myself to follow him. And instead of turning my eyes in on myself, I start looking at my family and beholding them and engaging them. And repentance is not looking at my sin. Repentance is looking at it for a moment, putting it under the blood of Jesus, and then turning away from it. Looking at my sin is still self-absorption. Repentance is looking at Jesus. And that's the life that God is calling us to. That's the life that God wants us for. And that's what true repentance is. And this is how we truly uh, come alive, is uh, that repentance means not looking at myself uh, and opening my eyes to the grace that is all around me. That's what repentance is, is beholding the grace of God. And this leads to the second point that I want to make this morning, is uh, so not just that life is meant to be lived, is not meant to be lived looking at yourself, but second, self-forgetfulness comes through a life story shaped by grace. The key to learning self, self-forgetfulness is to have the defining thing of your life be, my life is a life of undeserved grace. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, in this passage, Paul uses the, the kind of image of a courtroom uh, as he's talking about this church, and he says, uh, verse 3, uh, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And then he says, uh, and I don't even judge myself. And so he's, he's bringing us into the world of a courtroom, which I think for many of us, 
that's actually a powerful image, right? Because that, that kind of describes what our inner life can be like and our mind can be like as we perceive other people. As we're, you know, when, we're, when I was talking about depression and being turned in on ourselves, often what we're turned in on is we're making judgments all the time. You, that was a stupid thing you said in that group of people. Why did you say that? Or you can't do and You should be so ashamed of yourself. And, or you judge yourselves in terms of like, oh, I'm so glad I'm so much better than that person uh, at this. Uh, you know, but either way, I'm making judgments about myself, and it's like a mini courtroom is constantly happening inside my mind and my soul. Um, judgments are flying through our heads. And Paul says that the only judge he stands before is the courtroom of God alone. And it's interesting. Look at what he says again in verse 4. Look carefully at this. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Even if I analyze myself and think I've figured out myself, it doesn't mean that I'm acquitted before God. And the word that's used there for, uh, uh, for acquitted is, is the Greek word, dikaio, uh, which is the word for justified. The word justified comes from a courtroom, about being declared righteous in a courtroom. And he says, it's not by my introspection that I'm justified. It is some other way that I'm justified before before the Lord. And how is Paul justified before the Lord? This is Romans chapter 3. Listen carefully to this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's our life story, is that we pass the test of God's courtroom as a gift. It's an, it's an act of grace that God gives us this new verdict in Jesus. And so what Paul says is that self-forgetfulness comes through a life story that's shaped by that grace. I have this undeserving verdict that I get from God and he places on me and I stand before him, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And so that's the verdict that defines me. That's the story of my life is undeserved grace. And, uh, you know, this past week I listened to a, a radio uh, episode from This American Life, which is a radio program, and it was, uh, it was called uh, How I Got Into College. And which, they have a number of stories kind of all around this theme, if you ever listen to This American Life. And uh, one of the stories was about a guy named uh, Emmer, who uh, is a, he's a professor at University of Chicago Business School. And it tells a story about, uh, you know, he got a PhD from Harvard, and it tells a story about he, he was a, a refugee from Bosnia when he was an elementary school kid. And uh, he came over, he hardly spoke any English. He got put in this kind of like rough school that was not a very good school. And he tells a story about how, you know, how did, well, how did you become this prestigious professor? You got a PhD from Harvard. How did all this happen? Well, he tells a story that when he was in this elementary school, there was a teacher that came for just two weeks. It's the only teacher he remembers from, from, from this school. And she, was, she had all this energy. She loved to teach kids, and they were engaged with her. And um, during the two weeks, she had assigned, her name was Miss Ames, and she had assigned this paper that they had to write. And so he went home, you know, he knew hardly any English, and he'd been translating this book called The Fortress or something like that and, uh, into English. And so he had this translation of this novel. And so he just brings the translation and turns it in. And so the teacher gets the paper, and she says, you know, you shouldn't be in this school. You, I'm, gonna, I'm applying for this job at this prestigious private school, and I'm going to see if I can get you in. Sometimes they have scholarships for you know, kids from other countries, or you know, they want to be diverse and stuff like that, and maybe they have a scholarship for you. So she brings him there. He gets into the school, has this 
amazing education, gets a PhD from Harvard, and, and he's like, I never talked to the woman again. She just, I plagiarized this paper. I didn't deserve to go to that school. And she, you know, goes and is an advocate for me and gets me to the school. And so the, the radio program says, we've got to find this teacher so she knows what she did. So they spend months looking for this teacher. They finally find Mrs. Ames, and they sit down to talk to her and say, we want to talk to you about one of the students you had a long time ago. And she immediately knows who the student is. She's like, oh, it's, oh, it's Emma, isn't it? And they're like, whoa, you remember. You remember him. And she's like, oh, yeah, it turns out she wasn't his teacher for two weeks. She was his teacher for multiple months, and uh, he, did, he remembered it wrong. And actually, she knew immediately that he was a prodigy and that he was uh, brilliant, and all the teachers knew that, and she said, I've got to find a way to get him out of this school. And she said, actually, even if he'd stayed in the school, he would have he gone to Harvard and got a PhD. I mean, he was that good. He was teaching my class for me. And so they come back and they say, Emma, are you, are you, you know, because Emma's been telling this story his whole life. How did I get into Harvard? I this is the turning event of my life. This woman, you know, I was undeserving grace that she showed to me. So they come back and they say, to, they say hey, do you want to hear the true story? We got the true story from the teacher. And, he's, and he hears the whole story. And he says, I don't believe it. And they're like, what do you mean you don't believe it? And he's like, that is not the story of my life. And I won't tell it that way. I don't care what you say. I'm not going to tell it that way. Except he did find out that she lost her job because she took their best student from that school and sent him somewhere else. He's like, I'll add that part. So I, had, I didn't know that. So I was undeserving and she lost her job for doing it for me. He was insistent that a life story, a happy life story, is not one where I'm the hero. It is a life story of undeserved grace. And he's insisting upon that. And that, he says, that has been the source of my happiness in my life. And it's not even true. How much more for us? Our story is a life story of we were undeserved sinners. And God, he didn't just take us and put us in some, you know, elite private school. He puts us in his very household. He makes us his beloved children. And that's the thing that fills us with wonder when we realize the life is not about me. It's about the grace of God and opening my eyes and beholding it. That is when we come into health. And this is exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians. Is he's helping this congregation. This is what he says in verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Your life is one of grace. The opposite of pride, conceit, and self-absorption and being turned in on myself is the life of received grace. And when you've received grace, your eyes are open not to think about yourself all the time, but to behold your God, the goodness of your God, the kindness of your God, and that there, he has sprinkled grace in every area of your life. And to behold the world around you. Or as Hebrews 12 puts it, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes. Open your eyes to him the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I just want to close with a, on page three of your bulletin, I, I, I put a quote from C.S. Lewis from uh, Mere Christianity in one of his best chapters in that book where he talks about this very theme and as he gives his definition of what humili true humility is. This is what he says. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of 
uh, anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for your word and uh, just the freedom and joy of the life you intend for us. We thank you that you've given us um, a world uh, so filled with wonders for us to behold. You've given us a word filled of wonders to behold. And that you, most of all, are a God for us to behold. Give us eyes to behold you, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And I pray for those who are here who um, hear these words about being turned in on themselves and long to be freed from that. I pray for your Holy Spirit um, to teach them of your great goodness and, um, and uh, continue to teach us of uh, the grace that is all around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.